Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've chosen to reveal yourself through it. Uh, it's awesome. We look forward to studying this morning. We thank you that um, we can look to Job as an example of steadfast faith, and we pray that we will learn something incredible about you this morning. Help us as we um, look to your word, help us to grow, and help us to be in awe of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I, I'm a little bummed because I'll get to see my uh, presentation, but you guys might not, so just bear with us here. Um, you may, be, may have been a little confused when you picked up the questions for this week and wondered to yourself what happened to Genesis um, as you picked up the notes for Job. <clears throat> we were left with this awesome cliffhanger last week about Shem's genealogy, arrive, uh, preparing us for the arrival of Abraham, and then we pulled the old bait and switch and gave you Job instead. Uh, we meant to do a little bit of segue. That's okay. We're going to do that this morning. Um, most scholars believe that Abraham, I mean, that uh, Job lived around or slightly before Abraham, and given the fact that we're studying chronologically in the Old Testament, that's where we landed with uh, Job. So you might also be wondering, why am, I, uh, why am I preparing for Sunday school this morning in the book of Job? <clears throat> well, if you remember back in November, I shared with you uh, when we were studying the book of James that James was probably my favorite book in the Bible. Well, you can probably guess what my second favorite book of the Bible is, uh, the book of Job. There's, so there's a little bit of familiarity there. Uh, maybe you're saying, oh, you're cherry-picking on what you want to study. That's fair. Um, <clears throat> but when I was reading through the book of James and studying the book of James, I mentioned that James was heavily influenced by the book of Job, and that naturally led me to a study of the book, I mean, yeah, by, of the book of Job. So, um, admittedly, there are things in Job that fascinated me about the book that aren't necessarily theological in nature. Um, but let me ask you, what are the things about the Bible that fascinate you? Is it revelation and the things to come? Is it the story of Jesus? Maybe you're a history buff and you like the history of the Bible. Let me encourage you, whatever it is that fascinates you about Scripture, do a deeper dive into it, and you won't come away with it regretting the time you spent in it. It'll be so rewarding. There are things that I found out about the book of James and the book of Job that I had no clue, and I've only touched the surface of that. Um, it upsets me <clears throat> when people say the Bible is just a book of rules to control people. I'm like, you know, in my head I'm thinking, tell me you haven't read the Bible without telling me you haven't read the Bible. Uh, the Bible is so much more. To kind of piggyback and add to what Tyler mentioned, uh, the Bible is not just a history book, but it has history in it. The Bible is not just an instruction manual for our lives, but it is an instruction manual for our lives. It's not just... Uh, a book that includes science, but it, it is a book that includes science. A book of wise sayings, poetry, uh, autobiography. These are the words of life. Uh, the Bible is living and active. So 
I'm excited to study the Old Testament after going through the New Testament. Hopefully you guys are as well. So why the book of Job? There's 42 chapters dedicated to uh, the story of Job. <clears throat> they tackle probably one of the more challenging topics in all of Scripture, and that pertains to suffering. And it provokes us to ask questions that may, people may ask out in the world, like, why does God allow suffering? Uh, where is God in our suffering? And maybe we don't get all the answers to that in this book, but this book helps us to shape our perspective and give us a proper view on who God is and what our place is in the universe. Um, <clears throat> lest you think this is an important, an important topic, you mentioned, you remember last week, Tyler mentioned the deconstructed uh, Christian, and I can't speak to that one in particular, but many Christians have walked away from the faith, and their testimony starts with something tragic that happened in their life, um, some great suffering that they endured, and they ask themselves, why would God allow this in my life? Where is God? And they blame God. And if we're not careful, the same thing could happen to us if our faith isn't strong. So with that, let's get into the introduction for Job. So what do we know about the book of Job <clears throat> as a way of introduction? Well, it's believed to be the oldest written book in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> outside of that, there's not a lot known about its origin. We don't know who the author was. There are some thoughts that perhaps Samuel wrote it because it's one of the wisdom books. Um, many believe Moses wrote it because of the age, or maybe perhaps some earlier Hebrew author. I was surprised to find out that it has the largest collection of rare Hebrew vocabulary, uh, meaning that there are more words, Hebrew words in here that aren't found in anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. So it makes it sophisticated in a way. It's been referred to as ancient literature or a masterpiece of world literature. Now, I'm not a literary major, but I can appreciate a good piece of literature, and this book is incredible. Um, it's got narrative to start. It switches over to poetry in the middle chapters, then switch back to narrative again, if that's your sort of thing. <laughs> Some have questioned, however, whether Job is a real story of a real person or a parable. We read last week, Tyler read for us in Ezekiel, that Job is mentioned among Daniel and Noah. Um, I find it hard to believe that they would use two real people and then one fictitious in that. And then also, of course, James refers to the steadfastness of Job in, jo in James five, chapter 5. Of course, the book starts out and probably doesn't help those of us who think that Job is a real story. It kind of reads as a once upon a time or it starts out as a parable. And it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. This, is, of course, is not to be confused with the land of Oz. <laughs> I know I wasn't the only one that thought that this week. Unlike Oz, uh, Uz is a real place. It's actually mentioned a couple of times in the Bible in Jeremiah. It talks about the, land, the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines. And then in Lamentation, it says to rejoice and be glad 
O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. Most scholars believe that uh, it's located in Edom, or what would be modern-day um, Jordan, or northern Arabia. There are a couple of clues that Job gives us for that. It says that Job lived near the desert or the wilderness. The t- territory was fertile for farming and raising livestock. Uh, Job's homeland was vulnerable to Chaldeans raiding them. And Job was called the greatest of all the people of the east, being the east of the land of Israel. I'm not very versed in geography. I did have a map up for us where it is. If you have a better map, um, I'd be happy to see that. So So the book kind of plays like a um, movie in some some, um, scenes. So we get scene chapter 1. What descriptions of Job are presented of him in verse 1 through 3? They're our first question for the, for the book of Job. What did, we, what did we have for an answer of that in our notes? Yes, Barbara? Blameless and upright. Okay. Anything else? Kaylee? Feared God and turned away from evil. Great. Anything else? Yes, Claire? Was the greatest of all the people of the East. Right, right. So... I put it up on the screen as blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. He was a family man. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was wealthy, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many servants. And like uh, Claire said, greatest of all the people of the East. Job had everything, okay? Um, But he was also someone that had a sensitivity towards sin, at the end of um, that first part of Job, it says that he offered sacrifices daily for his children, just on the rare fact, uh, event that one of his children may have sinned against God in their heart. So there's, there's a real effort here by the author to make this very clear for us, and this uh, makes more sense as the story goes on. Then we shift to the next scene. We get this... Um, rare glimpse into a spiritual realm, um, and maybe as you read it this week, you were a little confused what's going on. Uh, it's kind of a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, into the heavenly realm, into the spiritual realm. It's one of the more intriguing interactions probably in all of Scripture. Let me just read it for you. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right, so there's a lot going on here. Let me try to um, break some of it down. 
it came up twice in our reading this week, so I do want to touch on it. Uh, first thing that comes up is this sons of God, and maybe you're wondering, son of God, I thought that was Jesus, right? This is not what that's talking about. Sons of God, there are a couple of different thoughts or ideas on who or what they are. The first one being angels or fallen angels. Um, some have said it's powerful human rulers. Others have said they were godly descendants of Seth, intermarrying with wicked descendants of Cain. Uh, I personally believe the strongest evidence suggests fallen angels. If you remember in Genesis 6 that we just read, it talks about the sons of God, or that they saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they, as they chose. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And that's a study all on its, on its own that I won't get into. But um, the argument against that is that Jesus said that angels don't marry. Um, however, if they're fallen angels, I doubt they're very concerned with obeying God. And this would just be another example of rebelling against God, in my opinion. But happy to discuss that with you after. <clears throat> then we get to Satan. Satan also came. And you might be thinking, well, where, where is this happening, right? Satan certainly can't be in heaven. I've heard it described in some ways as this heavenly courtroom of sorts um, or this divine council. Again, this is just speculation. We don't get the answer to this. Um, but God asked Satan, where is, he, where is he coming from? And he says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down. And this probably stirs your memory of something we just recently studied in First Peter. Satan's not just out on a stroll. He's out with an intent purpose. And First uh, Peter, it said, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In this case, he's got his sights set on Job. There's kind of some precedent for Satan and, Job and God interacting in this way. Um, we know that Satan is referred to as the accuser. We get that from a couple of references in Scripture where in Zechariah, he's given us vision, um, and it says, He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And then again in Revelation, we see that, uh, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I don't know if that's what's going on here. Sounds like it, but... There's precedent for this sort of interaction in other parts of Scripture. And then Satan uses the same tactics he uses today, right? Same tactics, different day. He's questioning, does Job fear God for no reason? He's accusing Job of only serving uh, God because of the things that God has blessed him with. And what's his intent? What's his motive? Stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will cause, curse you to your face. You remember that deconstructed Christian I mentioned earlier. Is that not similar to what happens with someone when they lose things? Um, they're tempted to curse God and blame God. So Satan's work we see at play here. Maybe there's a couple of additional questions or observations you came away from this passage with. First one being, why would God offer Job? Uh, if you remember, he says, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears and turns away from evil? We don't know the answer to that. Some have speculated that uh, because God knew Job and knew Job's faithfulness and had a confidence in that, of course, God himself reiterates Job's 
blamelessness before him. So he, he got it himself as affirming Job to be a faithful guy. Maybe we get the answer to it from Job's mouth himself in chapter 23 when he says the uh, familiar line from the Patch the Pirate song, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Another thought is that God knows the beginning from the end. Um, he knows Job's stories end, whereas Satan is limited to the here and now. We don't know the answer to that question, but it's a question that I had myself. There's another question. Am I faithful enough for God to ask that I be considered? Would I even be willing to be considered, to be tried by God for this reason? Of course, one of the other obvious um, things that you might have noticed is Satan's limitations. This should give us some comfort and encouragement to know that Satan has no power to do whatever he wants to us that God does not know about and that God has to allow Satan to um, afflict on us. And so there's nothing we're going through, nothing we're suffering through that God is not aware of. And we know that God is greater than Satan in every way. <clears throat> now the question that might, come up, might have come up was, does this type of thing still happen today? It's a good question to ask. Uh, we obviously looked at the Revelation reference, uh, perhaps future time. There's another interesting interaction back in the Lord's, um, at the Lord's Supper when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So we see another example of Satan having to ask for permission to afflict. Oh, anyways, moving on, chapter 1. Uh, we get to the next scene. Of course, this is Job's tragic day. This is the day in which one messenger after another comes to Job and tells him about the raid from the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, and worst of all, all of his children die um, from this great wind that blows down the house. Now, thinking back to James, where it says to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, that's not our immediate reaction, right? To tragedy. What was des what described Job's initial responses to the great tragedies that befall him in verse 20 through 21? That was our next question. What were, what were Job's reactions? Tyler? Right. So he falls down, he tears his clothes, shaves his head. The, he, he is going through great, great misery at this time understandably so. We can't lose sight of the fact that with great loss comes incredible grief and sorrow. To grieve is to be human. We know that Jesus, being fully human, grieved when his dear friend Lazarus died. Some, and some of that grief can last for years. Somehow, remarkably, Job is able to worship in the midst of this uh, it just it reminds me or, or makes me think of the tendency we sometimes have when we're grieving to withdraw from God, worship of God. Um, but yet we look to Job as an example of Job was worshiping not because of his circumstances, but because God was worthy of worship, and he is worthy of worship. So let me encourage you 
to continue to worship no matter what. We get, an ex, uh, we get these words from Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It reminds me of the expression, you can't take it with you, right? That's probably where this comes from. Um, those things we love so much, we have to recognize that God is the one that gave them to us in the first place, right? We know that James tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above. But we know that when those things go away, there's pain and there's hurt that comes with that. But we can experience all these things and have the similar response to suffering that Job did. Because what, what does verse 22 say that Job did not do in his initial response? Right, he did not sin. So he experienced the grief, the sorrow, the pain. He worshiped God, but he didn't sin. He didn't blame God. Chapter, chapter 2 brings us again to um, this scene. Again, there was a day, and Satan again comes to the Lord. He's not satisfied with the fact that Job did not curse him to his face. And he issues the challenge that uh, if you touch his, his bone and flesh, he certainly will curse you and die. And then Job, he goes away, and Job is afflicted with great sores from head to toe. Our next question was, after Job is further afflicted, his wife challenges Job to curse God and die. How does Job respond to her in verse 10? Brenda? Right, he said that she speaks as one of the foolish women, and what does 10b say that Job did not do? He didn't sin, right? In fact, he says, should we not receive good from the Lord and not, well, the word in the ESV says evil, but better translated, disaster or calamity. So what can we learn from Job's response when others encourage us to sin against God? What's that? It's foolish, right? And to add to that, even if those in our own household choose to sin against God, we're responsible ultimately for how we respond to a tragedy. Don't forget, Job's wife was going through the same thing. She lost the children, okay? And we see the contrast between her response and uh, Job's response. I think it's interesting that she uses the same words that Satan uses about cursing God and dying. Um, so, moving on in chapter 2, we are introduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the question was asked, what do Job's three friends initially do when they hear of the disaster that comes upon Job? Yes, Julia. What's that? They mourned with them, right? So a couple of things I I had written down is they made an appointment to come show him sympathy and comfort him. They wept. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. 
So I asked the question, what can we learn from Job's three friends about comforting others when they are suffering? Mm. Right, just be there for them. You don't have to say a, wor say a word. Someone shared a touching story with me this week about a time they were grieving, and they had many friends come and share words of wisdom and comfort with them, which, were, of course, were appreciated. But they had this one friend that just came and sat with them and held their hand and, and grieved with them and allowed them to grieve for over an hour without saying a word. And I just really appreciated that because... You know, sometimes there's a tendency for us to want to have the word, right words to say, right words of comfort, and none of that is wrong. But like Claire said, sometimes just making an appointment, being intentional about showing others sympathy and comfort. Never underestimate showing love to others this way. Unfortunately, as well-intentioned as the friends were, and they started out, um, if you remember in your reading from Job 42, God says to the friends, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So how do we get from there, to, from how they start to there? Well, we first start in chapter 3, which is Job's lament. Now, this would have been outside of your reading, so I'm going to try to summarize as best I can for us um, in the little time that we have left. But chapter 3 begins with Job's lament, where he starts to, chapter 3 through 31 starts to take us on this roller coaster uh, journey of emotions for Job. Um, he starts by cursing the day that he was born. He says, let the day perish on which I was born. Why did I not die at birth? And maybe some of you have been there before. His friends, of course, don't stay silent forever, and perhaps they should have. <laughs> um, what happens next, this next scene of the quote-unquote movie of Job's life, um, maybe this is the part of the, the movie where you might go out and grab popcorn or go to use the bathroom. It's pretty lengthy. There's a lot of repetitiveness in there, but did anyone, uh, I'm just curious, did anyone read through those chapters this week? Has anyone ever read through those chapters? <laughs> okay, all right. Well, if you're like me, you probably get to chap through chapter 3 and say, all right, I know what kind of happens in the middle, and I'll skip to 38. Well, let me try to fill in some of the blanks really quickly about the friends, who they were, what they're saying, and why God was so angry with them. Uh, we first start with Eliphaz the Temanite. So the, the sequence of events goes that a friend speaks or gives a speech, then Job replies, friend gives a speech, and Job replies. Uh, that's pretty much the back and forth. So I'll just give you the, what the friends say, then I'll switch to Job's responses. But Eliphaz the Temanite, his speeches were based on personal experience. He gave three speeches. The first, the theme of the first one was the innocent prosper. He asked the question, who that was innocent ever perished? He's looking at what's happened to Job and saying, there's no way, Job, that that you're innocent of sin. There, it must be something you're doing wrong. Uh, the next one was Job doesn't fear God. And then his last speech, the theme of it is Job's wickedness is great. See, the friends, there's a lot of truth that the friends 
give about God, but um, they appropriate, misappropriate it towards Job and assume that the Job is going through this suffering for these reasons. So they speak from a place of absolute certainty. Bildad the Shuhite is the next one who speaks, and his um, three speeches are based on tradition. Job should just repent. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. His other speech's theme is God punishes the wicked, which is true. And then a person cannot be righteous before God, which is true in many cases, right? So, um, Bildad even goes as far as to point out that Job's children sin and that God punished them for it. So he, he gets pretty harsh with Job. Zophar, the Nehemiahite, only gives two speeches. They're based on dogmatism. The first theme of his speech is Job deserved worse than what he got. These are his friends, mind you. <laughs> the the other theme of his speech is the wicked will suffer. So Job has some responses mixed in there to his three friends. One of them is he maintains his innocence. He maintains the fact that, that they, though they were accusing him of the secret sin that he wasn't repenting of, he's like, no, that, that is not what's happening here. I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. He says to them, what you know, I also know. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. I'm not inferior to you guys. Eventually, you can feel the tension and the frustration rising. He eventually calls them worthless phys physicians and miserable comforters. That's fair. <laughs> eventually, he asks, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Of course, Throughout Job's suffering, eventually he breaks. He hits a, a point in his life in which his questioning of God starts to turn to accusations of God. Um, I put a couple up here. Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? He destroys, talking of God, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He almost then starts to demand of God, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. Perhaps then he even attributes the work of Satan to God. He says, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. He calls him my adversary, when clearly we know who the real adversary is. He accuses God of not knowing how to manage the universe. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Then along comes this uh, younger man. So the idea is that perhaps this conversation is happening in an open place with a little bit of an audience. Um, so this man, Elihu, he's named as the youngest. He's not named as Job's friend, so he just kind of pipes in, but he shows respect to the older people and lets them speak first. But then he kind of, like a dog on a leash, is like, you know, <laughs> he comes in hot and he rebukes Job's three friends. He says, I, give you my, I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you have answered his arguments. 
He maintains that Job can't be right, for God is greater than any mortal. Then he defends God's justice. God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. It's interesting that when God rebukes the three friends, he doesn't rebuke Elihu. So Elihu's kind of more on track here with saying the right things. He condemns Job, and finally he speaks of God's greatness. He ends it in chapter 37 with, Hear this, O, Lord, o Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. It's at this point that God finally speaks, chapter 38. So the question was, after Job's questions eventually turn into accusations of God being unavailable, unjust, and not protecting the innocent, God finally responds to Job in chapter 38 and starts asking him a series of questions, starting with the most profound question in verse 38 verse 4, which is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? This is one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. I consider it one of a couple uh, mic drop statements by God. Um, the other one being, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Kind of like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Stop you dead in your tracks. I'm not going to say anything else. Um, I often think about this question you could probably fill in the blank. Where was Jeff LeMay when God laid the foundation of the world? Fill in your name in that blank. And really should elicit this humility before God. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's hear what else he has to say. But you notice that God doesn't start with defending why these things are happening to Job. Where does he start? He starts with himself. And even before the foundation of the world started, um, We move on to the rest of chapter 38. Well, before that, I asked the question, how does this passage in a passage such as Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, challenge us when we are tempted to accuse God of similar things when faced with trials or different circumstances? Did anyone have an answer for that? <clears throat> Craig. Mm. Mm, amen. All right, so I don't know if you heard that, but Craig asked, are we omniscient? We need to trust God who is omniscient. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. What God does in chapters 38 and 39 are awesome. I couldn't get enough of these chapters. Um, he takes Job and us on this virtual tour of the universe, and he really gets into the, the details of it. Um, while the Genesis account gives us this broad overview of creation, in many ways I feel like these two chapters are the perfect complement to that, the origin uh, story in Genesis, uh, just because they expand on God's creation, his greatness, his majesty. We won't have time to go through them all, but hopefully you were just as amazed as I was with the wording that God used, the artistry. Uh, it's just really beautiful set of chapters here, and God asks, starts asking all these questions. Who determined its measurements? Who laid its cornerstone? Who shut in the sea with doors? Have you commanded the morning 
since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Where is the way to dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Who who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? So I asked, what attributes about God stood out to you the most as you read through these? Any that just blew you away? Tyler. Mm. Mm. Amen. Amen. So the uh, recesses of the deep, talking about how we, we, don't even, we haven't even touched the ocean floor. We, there are parts of the ocean that are so undiscovered, yet God knows what's, un, what's under there. He, he's put animals there that we may never discover. I had put up on the screen a, a number of them that just kind of came to mind. How about... Um, uh, Craig had already mentioned the omniscience of God. How about the omnipresence? God is everywhere. He sees all things. God's power, his authority, his might, his wisdom, his meticulousness. How about the magnitude of God as you read these chapters? Just how vast he is. His creativity. Um, we read about Satan's limit, limitness, limitedness. How about God's boundlessness? God knows no bounds. And then just the beautiful artistry of God as I read these chapters. So I asked you to meditate on these chapters and pray that God would lead us to the same conclusion about himself that David shares in 1 Chronicles 29.10. Just quickly to go through that, David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. All that is in heaven and in, in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to grip strength to all. Should we not walk away from chapters 38 and 39 thinking these thoughts? In many ways, I would love to take an unbeliever to these chapters and show them this is the God we serve. I would love to show you how you can know this God. <sighs> All right, I'm running out of time here. Uh, so Job responds to the Lord in chapter 40. He echoes a similar sentiment as David does in Psalm 8 through 4. And he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. God leaves Job speechless. David similarly says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? I ask the question, what is Job and David trying to communicate here, and how does that help us to worship in true humility? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Claire? It's a God man of insignificance. Amen. Right, so compared to God, we are insignificant. Um, I'm also reminded that while God doesn't need us, he still chose to create us uh, out of the billions and billions of people. Do you ever stop and think about that? And then furthermore and more significantly, he chose to save us. 
He chose to send his son to die for us. And hopefully you come away with that, being able to worship God in true humility. For the sake of time, we're not going to be able to get into chapter uh, 40 and 41, which is a shame because I mentioned earlier there were things about Job that kind of fascinate me uh, that aren't necessary, necessarily theological. Behemoth and Leviathan being two of those things. Um, I kind of share a fascination like Dino Dave does with that, and hopefully you've heard some of his work. But um, I'll jump to the question that asks, as as God describes these massive, fearsome beasts, um, what, what point is he trying to convey to Job and us about these animals? And maybe Job's place. Well, I wrote down from Job 40, 15, God says, Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. God puts on display these two massive and fearsome animals to show Job and us God, uh, that God controls those animals that people have no dominion over, but he also controls our lives, and he's in control of everything. He's sovereign. If we can trust him to manage these animals that man can do nothing to, to um, thwart, what do you think God can do with Satan? What do you think God can do with the trials in our lives? God says, who then is he who can stand before me Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Real quickly to, uh, to conclude, Job's uh, final response to God. He acknowledges, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We just talked about that. And ultimately, this leads him to a repentance. And he says in Job 40, um, 2, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. See, we don't get the answers to why does God allow suffering or necessarily where God is in our suffering sometimes. But when we are suffering, hopefully at the end of that trial that we are suffering, that, that we've learned and how a, a greater depth of knowledge and a greater love for our God and that, like Job, we could say, now my eyes see you. I borrowed this really quickly. It says, the book of Job teaches us to trust God under all circumstances. We must trust God not only when we don't understand, but because we don't understand. The psalmist tells us, as for God, his way is perfect. Our responsibility to God is to obey him, to trust him, to submit to his will whether we understand it or not. So hopefully uh, Job, the book of Job helped us with that. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Fa Father, we just thank you so much for your sovereignty over our lives. We thank you for how you show yourself to us um, through trials, through suffering. We thank you for the book of Job um, that we can learn so much from. I pray that you would help us to have the steadfastness that Job showed. Um, and I pray that we would gain a deeper trust in you and a love for you that um, only you can provide. And I just pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.